Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear from you. Check the description to get details on how you can contact us and share your thoughts. Remember to follow this podcast so that you get notified when a new episode is released. Feel free to leave a rating and review as well. Live Harmony is available on all of the major platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Check your preferred podcast platform for availability. You can also follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Live Harmony. You can also email us at info at liveharmony.com. And until next time, continue inspiring each other to live in harmony. Hey everyone, I'm Asha Laps. And I'm Kurt Henry. And we are your hosts for Live Harmony. Live Harmony is about stories that inspire. Being, doing, and having more. Impacting our communities. Relationships that transform. Learning, growing, and giving. Live Harmony, living the life we love. And loving the life we live. Today's guest is Selena Cesar Chavan. Selena is a business consultant, coach, and international speaker. She currently serves as the senior advisor, EDI initiatives, and adjunct lecturer at Queen's University. And her memoir, Can You Hear Me Now, was published by Penguin Random House Canada on February 2nd, 2021. She was the former member of parliament for Whitby, parliamentary secretary to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and parliamentary secretary for international development. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Live Harmony. Today, I'm with my co-host, Kurt Henry. Hello, everybody. And our lovely guest today is Mrs. Selena Caesar Chavan. Welcome, Selena. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited about this. Yes, we're we're, we're 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 excited to have you today, and just so grateful. Right. Uh, we know it's a busy busy time for you, and we're just so thankful that you took some time to to chat with us today. And today we have the the pleasure of talking about your book. Officially, thank you for for sending me a copy. And let me tell you that when I got it. It was one, one evening I kind of sat in the bed, it was about 11 o'clock and I'm just like, let me just, you know, let me just check out the intro here. Selena, watch me at 3 a.m. Still like, I, it, I was not ready yeah. for, for the page turner that, <laughs> that it was going to be. So thank you yeah. for coming on here to, to just discuss it and we're, we're going to get into things. So thank you in advance and I'm going to turn it over to Kurt. Yes. All right. I'm from the new school. So I got the... Um the the audiobook version here so i oh, listened yeah. to the book for me yeah 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 you did a great job there <laughs> like why would i read it when selena <laughs> could read it for me <laughs> she already did. <laughs> so, <laughs> so i wanted to i got wanted to start towards the end of your book actually where you you had a moment of reflection and you talked about having the opportunity to reflect on who selena is and what her purpose is and so i just kind of want to start there and and get your what the results of that reflection was. Who is Selena and, and what is her purpose? Um, who is Selena and what is her purpose? So I could say that my purpose really is around, my purpose stems from the love for my community. So what I do now and why I disrupt and why I sort of put things out there that make people go, what? Or who? Or, oh my God. And like have a conversation and call their friend. They're like, did you hear what Selena said? And do that kind of stuff. It's because I want 
I want to always ride for my community. And by ride for my community, I, I'm not just talking about Whitby. I'm talking about Black communities. I'm talking about women. I'm talking about people with multiple intersecting identities. I'm talking about really understanding fundamentally that all of those individuals that I mentioned will be left behind by a pandemic, by climate change, by geopolitical issues. And if somebody is not going to ride for them and be disruptive in spaces where we're traditionally quite docile, then we will be left behind. So that's that's my 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 purpose is tied to a very fundamental deep love that I have for my community. And that's for people who are the poorest and most vulnerable in the world who happen to look like us on this screen. How I, I got there, I think, is by understanding that I have, I don't, I'm not, I don't sympathize with people. I don't sympathize. I don't say, oh, you know, I feel sorry for you. Here's some cookies that I baked. For because first of all, I don't bake. But here's a drink for you that I mixed. <laughs> that will that'll be a better thing. But I don't sympathize. I empathize. And I wrote the book the way I did because I wanted people to know that I felt pain. I know what it's like to be left behind. I know what it's like to hurt. I know what it's like to do like really dumb stuff and feel like your life is over. And I, I wanted people to know that my passion for my community does, isn't coming from an empathetic, a, a sympathetic perspective. It's coming from one where, with empathy, where I feel your hurt. And as long as I'm feeling that hurt, juxtaposed with my love, I am going to ride for you. I'm going to fight for you. And so that's, that's my purpose. And that's really ha has been who I am. Nice. So we can, now we can go to the beginning. And <laughs> Deciding to write the book, what was the trigger for you to say, you know what, I have to write this book? <laughs> it was actually, there's a couple of things that happened. So, and this wasn't why I wrote the book, but it was part of the sort of backstory that kind of feeds into it. So a couple of years ago, or maybe last year, the Ontario Black History Society did this campaign where they blacked out all of the history books that our children read at school. And they decided to put they decided to, to black out everything that didn't have any reference to black people. And in a, in a book that had 200 some odd pages, there was only about a dozen that had any new reference to black people being in this country. And I wanted to make sure that there was a historical account of what happened while I was here or I was there. Wherever here or there happens to be, there will be a record of what it was like while I was there. The second thing is, is that if we want spaces to change, or we want parliament to change, add women change politics, or we want C-suite positions to change, or we want you know, boards to change, but we're not willing to tell our story of how our identity related experience, expertise and knowledge add value to those places and therefore is an asset to those spaces because we're so busy hiding all of our shame and everything else how are those spaces expected to change? If we keep conforming to fit into a space, how do we expect that space to change if we don't bring our full authentic self? So that was number two. And number three, and I think most importantly, I needed to heal. I was holding on to a lot of stuff. And by telling that story, I think others could heal as well. We own our mistakes, our mistakes don't own us. And therefore we could decide to throw them away 
to learn from them, to ignore them, to rent them out to the next person, you know, we can decide what to do with it. We usually hold them on like in a little backpack on our back and we're like, oh my God, my mistake is right here. And I'm so ashamed. I don't want anybody to see it, but I'm going to hold on to it for the rest of my life. What? Like, get rid of it. Just let it go. And I, I've always said that if one person knows your secret, it's not a secret. So just, just let it go and be done with it. So healing. Thank you. A lot of people say that writing and, and sharing is therapeutic. So I can- Very, that. That's very therapeutic. Yes. Yeah. How difficult was it when you started to write to kind of share those stories in the book? Did you have somebody saying, Selena, like we need more or you got to go deeper? Or was this just, you decided to come out with it from the, from the, from the beginning? I had a fantastic editor at Random House Canada named Ann Collins. And when I first wrote the first version, she's like, this is great. You're a great writer. And you know where they like, they butter you up and tell you all the nice stuff. And then I'm like, mm, she being too nice. <laughs> what are you going to say next? And then she said, but there are holes here, here, here. <laughs> and I was like, no, there aren't. You know, when your voice goes kind of high when you're lying. No, there aren't. <laughs> She's like, yes, they are. And she said, okay, so your brand from politics is this truth teller. Your brand is authentically Selena. Like that's what you're known for. So if I could see that there's glaring holes in this story, don't you think that people are going to notice that? And so I rewrote it and put some, some other content in there. And then she asked me a very important question. And she said, do you want this book to hurt or to heal? And then I started crying. <laughs> and I was like, I want it to heal, people. And so I wrote it in a way that was not only therapeutic for me, but allowed people to who even had similar experiences to say, I could heal from that. I could, I could own that mistake. I could own that hurt, that challenge, whatever that is. And now I could let it go. Even if you do that in the privacy of your own home, but you could let it go. And then you, the title of the book, how did you come up with the title for the book? It touched on me in a few different ways. And I'm kind of curious on how you came up with the title for it. I didn't. There's a couple of people involved in this book that are both family members. My daughter, Candace, who was 16 at the time, designed the, the concept for the cover of the book. So she got paid in a contract with, with Penguin Random House. My husband, who came up with the title, didn't get paid. <laughs> which is usually the case. <laughs> Poor guy. He's always following me around hustling for me, but he never gets paid at the end. Um, but he came up with the title for the book and we were really struggling with a title that would capture exactly the nuances that are Selena. It's like, you know, saying to people that are hurting, can you hear me now? Like, it's okay to let it go. Or to like people in the political system, like, can you hear me now? Like, you know what I mean? There was that healing in there, but there was also that defiant Selena. And that picture that was at the front could be any and all of those things. It could be the softness, but it could also be the warning. Like you picked the wrong one. Okay. So I was um, just sort of an overarching question. Just like, how would you say you approach life in general? Is there like a I don't know, a principle to which you approach, approach things. Yeah. So I have two books. Well, one book, that's my favorite book. It's not mine. It's called <laughs> Spark by Christine Barnett. 
And it speaks about intuition and in particular mother's intuition. And she had a son who was nonverbal. And now this son who was, she was told was nonverbal, told no by the man, told no by doctors, told no by everybody is now a PhD. And it got, it's, it's always guided me because, you know, we tend to dismiss our intuition, especially as females, but especially as black women, Caribbean black women, people from of African descent, we have a special gift that I don't think we really use. And we, we've kind of dismissed our grandmothers with this and, you know, you see things, you, you know, you feel things, you know, you had a dream about a fish. Oh, my, that's my mother. Here, that is my mother. Right. Like all <laughs> kinds of stuff. And we dismiss it. But we have a very powerful tool called intuition. I think as, mm. as the birthplace of all humanity, we have that more than any other. And we should really take that in. But then another essay that I really like is by Clayton Christensen. And it's called, How Will You Measure Your Life? And in it, he says that, um, and Clayton Christensen died a few months ago. He was a Harvard professor. And he said, it's easier to hold on to your values and principles 100% of the time than it is to hold on to them 98% of the time. If you give into just this once, just this month, I'm not going to do good. Just this once, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to take a chance and, and not follow my values based on the marginal cost analysis. You'll regret where you end up. You've got to define for yourself what you stand for and draw a line in a safe space. And after I've lived a life that's full of mistakes and flaws, and I still make them, I know that one of my guiding principles are my values and beliefs. And my values and beliefs are anchored by that pain that is described in that book. So it'll never waver. I, I know where I stand on issues. And it's one of the reasons that I stood for Jody Wilson-Raybould. It was one, and me and Jody were not friends, but I knew I couldn't leave her to hang out there. I, I couldn't do that for my community. I couldn't do that. So I'm anchored by that love and anchored by that pain, but my values are solid when it comes to what I believe in. Beautiful. Ah. Um, so there is a quote that uh, Kurt uh, pulled out. So the fatal lies are the ones we tell ourselves. Mm. Um, how did you get to this point of being able to tell yourself, tell yourself the truth? How do you get to the point where you tell yourself the truth? I also say that politics was one of the most painfully beautiful experiences that I've had. It was painful because it was just painful. Yeah. Um, but it was beautiful because I was able to realize that all that pain finally had purpose. All that hurt finally had something that I could give voice to. It created the empathy, the, the empathetic courage to act. I was able to tell myself the truth because over all these, all, all these years, I was judging myself, dogging myself for the fact that I made mistakes, that I somehow, somehow being punished through this process by the universe because of all the wrongs that I have done. And when I finally realized, no, all the wrongs you've done weren't punished, you weren't, you're not being punished for them. It was preparing you for moments. It was preparing you for the moment and I don't even think I've met, I've gone to the moment yet. I think I've always been prepared. Politics was a, a stepping stone of preparation for me. Once you get to a point of enlightenment, once you get to a point where you're no longer lying to yourself, doubting yourself, giving yourself that, those reinforcing negative thoughts, 
and you're able to live a life in the frequency of love, it's a different beast. But I had to go through that painful experience like that. Like, why am I here at the top of my game, parliamentary secretary, the prime minister and feeling all this pain? Like, what? Why mm -hmm. is this happening? Because there's purpose in that pain, Selena. And when you realize what that is, your life will be a lot better after that. So yeah. take that pain and make it purposeful. Beautiful. So the next question is about your you you and your mom. You you shared about the relationship that you had with your mom. I related to that a lot. Oh my goodness. Um, I had a tough relationship with my with my mother, and you know the girls who had the mother daughter nice relationships. I did not have that. Mm -mm. Oh my goodness, this was not supposed to happen. And she was tough. She was strict. I couldn't do anything. And sometimes I see her now with my niece and nephew, and I'm like, who is that? Who's that woman? Because that is not the woman that I, right? that I knew. And right. I was the eldest. The rules were strict for me. Yeah. The siblings came along. It was a bit of a, more of a breeze. But anyways, all that to say, tell us about the relationship with, with your mom years later as you became yeah. a parent and, yeah. you know, have you yeah. reconciled that? Um, what is it like now? Or what kind of have you hmm. told yourself to kind of, I don't yeah. know, full circle the full circle or maybe have more of an understanding of her. Yeah. So relationships are interesting, right? And so just like my political process was painful, my childhood wasn't, you know, rosy and I wasn't, you know, having these nice little cozy moments with my mom, but I dedicated the first person I dedicated this book to and was my mother. And I, I said to Odessa Caesar, the iron that sharpened me. And in the book, I used the line, I feared her while she feared for me and therefore treated me the way she knew the world would. And that is profound because all my life I was like, you know, if, so, if somebody had read me that line earlier, I'd be like, and, and so what, why she got to treat me like that for? If she know the world's going to be hot on me, why can't she be softer? Right. Yeah. But she knew that moment with the prime minister would come up, not maybe as that moment, but as someone coming in from Grenada, a very small island that has a population less than the size of Whitby, and I am now the member of parliament for Whitby. So she knew that no matter what badness, what kind of foolishness her daughter was doing, how much she was flunking out of university, that she was going to be large. And so when you get large and you're a, a child who at three years old sings at the top of the stairs, if you want my body and you think I'm sexy, she knows that life is not going to be easy for me. So she is going to be the iron to Odessa Caesar, the iron that sharpens me, not the pillow, not the feather that sharpens me, the iron. And she could not be wavering in that because if she was wavering, even for a moment in that, me with JT would have been a different story. It would have been a sorry sorry I didn't mean to say I was leaving <laughs> instead of <laughs> version. <laughs> right and yes. so up and I and, I and I say that I'm a crier I cry at everything I could have cried at that moment but in that moment that iron that sharpened me all those moments flashed in a way that was I, it was out of body. 
it was really out of body. And I remember kept thinking about all the times I'd been called out my name. I remember kept thinking about all the times that I was scolded for things I didn't do, things I did do, but I didn't think they found out about that I was scolded for anyway. Things that were, you know, not my fault, things that I, I should have done better, the, the grief, the everything in that moment, they came to life. And it was like, it was forced out of me. The pain, the iron that sharpened me in that moment allowed me to say, you picked the wrong one today. Mm. You picked the wrong one. And so if anybody has a problem with me and JT and what happened, like blame my mom. That's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> <Not> my fault. <laughs> I blame her for everything anyway. So you gotta go ahead, blame my mom. But the relationship is one in which we are honest about our relationship. So we okay. said to her, look, if our relationship gets better, great. If it stays just the way it is, but if it gets, I don't want it to get worse. So let's not pretend that we're lovey-dovey, the dovey, huggy, friendly, and let's just let's just ex- let's just live and see like what, what is what it is. It is what it is. It's not good or bad, and not right or wrong. It is what it is. She did what she had to do to mm-hmm. raise a fierce, independent black woman in an icy cold country like Canada, and I'd say she did a damn good job. I'd say too. <laughs> Amazing. And then let us know a little bit about the, the beginnings. Uh, you talk about your, your grandparents, the Mrs. Caesar, and the, the difference. It's so interesting. And just, you know, how it was written was just so vivid. So I, I picture the Mrs. Caesar, I picture your grandfather, and just the, the, the warmth of your grandfather and the love that you, you speak um, of him. So if you can just tell us a little bit about, about your grandparents and the times of maybe going to visit Grenada, the reprieve that gave you to go home for those, for those summers. And yeah, as, as you talk about the, the, the drab and the gray of Canada, and then when you talk about being home in the Caribbean, I just, I, I see colors, you know? So if you can just tell us a little bit about uh, your grandparents and um, their love for you and yeah I think a lot of people from the Caribbean people of African descent have these experiences with grandmothers in particular but I don't really talk about a lot of the men in my life in this book so I don't have a lot about my dad although my dad taught me you know navigation north south east west don't say you're making a right turn where do how do you turn do you sound north south east like dad can I just say I turn right (laughs) no it's north south east west which one is it you know, I mow the lawn, I could change my own tire, I could do all this stuff because he grew me up like he grew up his sons, right? Mm. He was like, we had a very, we had a great relationship with my dad. But I talk about my grandfather in this book because I mourned his death like I've mourned no other thing. I, 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 I don't really care for people dying anymore. Like people die, it's okay. Because I vowed that, that his death would be the last time I cried like that. It was just so painful. I, I could not go back into that state of being mm-hmm. where I black out over something like that because I loved him so much. And the only part of this book that I could look at my book, like it's like I didn't write it myself. It is dog-eared. It is like has notes in it. And I wrote it. Yeah. But I can't read that part of the book without wow. like sobbing. And I've read it many, many times. And I always sob at that part. But in my beginnings, like I knew for sure that my, well, I knew for sure my grandfather loved me. Yeah. I knew for sure that my grandmother loved me, but more of a respect. Like, let's not be 
snuggly. That's <laughs> unnecessary. <laughs> it's unnecessary to snuggle. But, you know, I, I remember, you know, just going back home and how amazing it was to land in Grenada and just see that plane, like the wing of the plane, like just about to hit down at the airport and the water and everything and the the whole house is painted pink and red and yellow and I was just thinking this is where I need to be these are this is why black people have melanin because we need to be in the sun we need to be in the warmth and not just the warmth of a country but the warmth of community and when I stepped onto my grandparents property I knew that there was love there Mm. In a, in a, you know, in however they wanted to show it, it was love. And I always felt safe, mm. right? I didn't necessarily feel safe in my environments here because I knew at any moment licks would be flying and I'd be in trouble yeah. for something. But there it was safe and I was okay. And just being there gave me a grounding of, of who I was or who I am. But at the same time, gave me that example of, through my grandmother, one of them, at least Mrs. Caesar, of entrepreneurship and what it is to be the, the matriarch of a family. To, 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 what, we have to depend on who? What, your grandfather <laughs> to do what? <laughs> to bring home what bacon? You didn't see me cut up bacon, right? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, we're not depending on you. It'll be good if you contribute, but we're not depending on you. And it was kind of like this horror, like she didn't have to say it, but it was the presence of, yes, okay, this is how we operate as women. This is how we operate as independent women. This is how we operate as feminists, which she would never have called herself, but she was the ultimate feminist where she would do that. But at the same time, when the kids were passing up the road to go to school in the country, and she would say, did you eat breakfast? Like, why do you have to be so like, like rough? Did you have breakfast? Like you're scaring them. And that child would be like, no, Mrs. Caesar. And she would make sure that before that child walked from this end of the gate to that one, that that kid had something to eat. You know, so you, you, you see the love. Demonstrated. And, that's a, and that is an intersectional feminist perspective to feed those and close those who have less than you. And now we're writing like big books on it. I was taught that long time. Oh my goodness. Yep. Those are the stories of like, they, they didn't have a lot, my grandparents, but my parents always said that nobody went hungry and anybody could come to the house and, and get fed. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's how we operated. Yeah. So my wow. beginnings taught me that a lot of what I live by mm-hmm. very well. So just to shift a little bit, what do you think people need to realize about, um, the sacrifice that that leaders who are on the front lines fighting to make things better for others, that people need to realize what that sacrifice is. And at what point do you have to know that it's time to take a moment to look at, look after yourself? The, the second part of the question answers the first, like people don't realize that the sacrifice is there the biggest thing that I've had to tell people is, oh, Selena, you left the table. Why did you leave the table? You're at the table. You left the table. I'm like, okay, Asha and Kurt, like, like, let's, let's be clear. You've thrown dinner parties before. 
and you, you, the people that you invite, you have the people that you like sitting close to you and because you want to be like chatting with them and talking to them about, did she really wear that to my party? You know, you want to be like <laughs> saying things like that. And then the people that you had to invite, but you really didn't want to, um, they're somewhere at the end because you don't want to be talking to them all night. And then you have the, the bartender and people that are helping to serve. They're on the periphery. You're, you're being cordial to them, but you really are not engaging them all night because you're paying them to be there, right? So this is what people, I think, need to understand about sacrifice in leadership and when it is time to leave and not quit, but mm -hmm. leave, is when I got into parliament, I recognized that, hey, I, I wasn't right beside the prime minister or anything, you know, because I, you know, I'm going to be humble <laughs> a little bit. I was like a couple seats over, you know, where I could still say, hey, Jay, pass the salt. You know, and he'd be like, he didn't have to say, what did you say? He would be able to just pass me the salt and we'd be like, hey, good. Thank you. You know what? Because, you know, seasoning food is important. <laughs> so when I started talking more about like mental health and equity and stuff, all of a sudden I'm like, hey, Jay, pass the salt. I was like, oh, how did I end up down at the end of the, I thought I was like one of the cool kids who sat beside him. And then all of a sudden I was like, now I'm talking about race in 2018, not 2020 when it's cool to talk about race, but 2018. And then I'm like, oh, how did I end up back here? Like I'm, I'm like at the servants table. And then when I really got into it with Maxine Bernier and stuff, I was like, oh, oh crap, I'm on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> And so what I think people need to realize is that we are in the room. You don't know if we're at the table or on the periphery or on the menu. So don't say, you know, oh, representation matters. So you should just stay there. Well, stay there and do what? Just sit on the periphery the whole time? And what? Be the, the house Negro? No, thank you. We are, if representation matters, we are either going to push the status quo and we're going to disrupt and we're gonna, we're gonna try to make things better. But when you're on the menu, because you're being too disruptive, you can't just figure out who you are, the docile version and sit and be quiet. Aren't you grateful for this job? Like I didn't work hard. That's mm -hmm. when you need to make a decision about what you do next. And either way has a cost. So the, yeah. the thing is you could be the model minority and stay and cost your own integrity and your life and who you are as an individual, or you'd be disruptive. And it costs me like working in Canada from 2019 to 2020, which I didn't, I couldn't find a job and I wasn't being hired. And all of my white male colleagues who left parliament the same day I did got jobs and got hired and I didn't. And so it comes at a cost either way. But if I could go back to the values and beliefs, is the economic loss worth more than your own personal well-being and values? And to me, nah, I need to be able to look myself in the mirror, look my children in the eye and say, yeah, I'm not selling out. I'm not half-stepping for nobody. And I think that, you know, those of us who have the capacity to do so, and I want to say this with a big asterisk beside it, because yeah. I want, I want our people to be safe. So not everybody's going to be able to go off and tell off a prime minister or say, I'm on the menu and, you know, I'm going to just leave. I recognize that's not the case for everybody. I'm not, I'm not blinded to that. Yeah. But those that can do that, 
need to say, no, not today. You pick the wrong one because that now will give the, the, the next time they run into someone that looks like me, it'll give them pause to say, hmm, am I going to stick a fork in this one? Because the last one told me <laughs> off. <laughs> I don't know if I and then wrote a book about it. <laughs> right? I don't know if I want to do that to this one today. Yeah, right? so <laughs> we have to we have to recognize that the sacrifice we can't just say you're at the table and you're leaving the table we have to say you're in the room what happened while you're in the room and I'll just close with this quickly mm-hmm. is that because you were in the room mm-hmm. and because I was on the table and you know um was on the menu now I actually know what the bounty looks like I know how much food is actually on that table So when they're talking about making investments in black communities of 2.5 or $200 million, I'm like, no, I wanna say, I want all y'all to say, no, take it back. No, we're not taking that because we know that you gave one organization 500 million and you wanna give all of us 200 or you wanna give us a historic investment in gender-based violence after a pandemic but you know that you gave one organization in 2018, 3.8 million. So I know what the bounty looks like. So now on the outside, now my responsibility Mm -hmm. of what happened when I was in that room is needs to bear fruit where I need to say to community, let's be clear about what they're promising to you because what they're promising to you is chump change. It's nothing. It is actually crumbs off the table, literally, mm. not even a rounding error. If most people got a few million dollars in a bag and tripped and fell out of the, the, the stairs of, of parliament and the money blew away, they wouldn't even notice. And we're like running and, oh, thank you. Thank you, prime minister. Thank you for this. You're giving us when you, what you won't notice is missing and we're saying thank you. Like we didn't contribute to the economic, social, and political infrastructure of this company of this country for more than 400 years. You've got to be kidding. It's disrespectful. I need to take a drink now. Now you got me all <laughs> Oh man. Okay. Well, our next question might make you smile a little bit. I want to okay. know about the mister. You had a quote in here that said there was something about him that made me feel secure. I am not sure I had ever known. So tell us about Mr. Chavan, um, what advice and what advice would you have for anybody that's dating somebody who is high profile or, or in the public eye? Um, my, my partner always says, Asha, you know, you can, you can be the Oprah, I'll just be Stedman and I'll just make sure you're good. <laughs> So he's like, I don't want any of the limelight or the fame, but he's always just there. And I know I'm safe. But also the same thing. And I'll correct that. He's Dr. Chavan. So Dr. Chavan. Tell us about him. He's Dr. Chavan. Yes. He has his doctorate in educational leadership and um, has always been a strong proponent for um, education and especially education related to black children and making sure in particular that black boys are um, are getting their their proper dues in our education system. I respect his his love 
for our community. And I think I learned that from him because me <laughs> in my 30s was like, yeah, let's make money. I was only looking at green while he was looking at our community and really like loving it. But um, something about it made me feel secure. So I would say to anyone who's dating, and then I'll speak to some to, you know, dating someone who's high profile, which is very different. I mean, I wrote in the book how I wrote, you know, the list of things that I wanted and I didn't compromise on that. And when I met him, I knew exactly that we didn't have to get, like, I want to divorce Vidal, like, at least every three months. Like, even today, like, you know, I, I already told him this morning, like, we're done this week for sure. Like, it's over and I'm done with you and I can't be bothered. So at least every three months, I want to divorce him. But I know that we were meant to be. So in as much as I say that, like he's in the kitchen right now. I've been I've been sitting in this chair since 11 o'clock. It is now 8 p.m. I have not gotten up. He's like making dinner. And I always say I'm there. I'm here because he is there. Wherever here is, he is there for me. And he he rides for me. He is my guy. He's my person. He's He lets me do all the crazy stuff that you read about in the book. And he's like, okay, babe. Okay, okay, babe. You, you're okay, babe. <laughs> it doesn't make him any less. It Absolutely makes him not. so much more. You know, and he didn't realize that he was going to be marrying a high-profile person who was going to tell off a prime minister. But his job is always to protect me. So in all of that happening, every time I send a tweet out, you have to hear the conversation that goes on before that. <laughs> so. Um, so, you know, because he's like afraid of me too, because I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, I'm like ready to fight everybody all the time. And so, you know, babe, do you really need to like, you know, to, like that, do you want to use that word in, can you say it in a, you know, a, a gentle, boy, do you want to sleep on the couch again? Like, you know? So his job is to protect me. And I understand that I know that. And so anything that I've done while in the public eye, he's always calculated every single risk involved in that interaction, that tweet, you know, me saying I'm voting conservative on the weekend, like, what, babe, like, what are you, you might as well just hand in your black card, like, <laughs> what are you doing? But I'm nothing if not disruptive. And we cannot continue to be predictable as black people in particular. So let's be disruptive. Let's disrupt the comfortableness of political parties to, to the black vote. Let's, let's disrupt how people think that we think. Let's disrupt that. Let's make it a little fun for the rest of us. Because everybody else is out there having fun. And we there like, oh my God, you know, like if this party gets in, we, we, we'll be dead. And no. Let's disrupt this system. Let's let's make it unpredictable for a moment because none of them love us. None of them love us the way we love us, right? So his job has always been to be my protector, to say, I know you go off, you go off, <laughs> you know that, but, but can you not do that today? And my answer is always no. <laughs> So you now he needs to figure out how to protect me when I say no. That's all. Same job, different circumstances. Love it. But before, before I get into the next set of questions, there's just a few things that I that I did come across from reading the book and just from what you're sharing today. I'm going to go back to when you said Dr. Siobhan, I immediately went back to that list 
of requirements. Did you actually write that list down? Is, was that a written list of yes. things that you wanted? Everything that you wanted, you, you wrote it down and you literally walked and around I would, with that list. I would add stuff and I would have little check boxes, right? And you walked and around I, with that list. Yeah, but I wouldn't check anything off until I like mentally went through every line. And the only time I did was with Vidal and it was all checked. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> right. I met him. Yeah, I would add things like he had to have a car. And the list was so long by the end of it. Like it was, it was ridiculous. And that's why my coworkers thought, oh, we're going to have to marry her ourselves. Like she's going to be here for the rest of her life. But I found right. Well, first of all, thank you for saving your response to the PM for the book. For those that want to hear what she said, you're going to have to read it. Um, (laughs) And I I know you said you could blame it on my mother, but I also see an element of your grandmother in the sense that you said that people know when she likes you and and you don't want to know when she doesn't like you. I, I get the sense that it also applies to you as well. Yes. Yeah, and, and I think that that ties into the part where I talk about friends, where I'm, I use that word very specifically, and people who are my friends know that. I, I one time told someone that they're not, they were like, oh, we're friends, and I'm like, no, we're not, and her face was so, like the hurt, and then I realized I shouldn't say that anymore. I should just like not say anything. If you don't know me, you're not my friend, and I'm not interested in making friends period. I'm a, I'm a lone wolf. And I'm not, I think I'm not interested in making friends particularly because I know I just, I'm very spontaneous. I like my freedom. I, you know, three-year-old naked Selena is 47-year-old naked Selena. I I just like being free and I don't want to be held down by anybody. So the few friends that I do have know my spirit and are able to give me that freedom. So what I wanted to do now is kind of talk about the principles that you learned along the way, really, because you've been through so much, nothing really came easy for you. And I think when you when you go through so many challenges, you learn a lot in the process. And one of the things that stood out was the relationships that kind of transform or change you. You had some people kind of intervene at what I would say are some critical points in your life. Some of the ones that I noticed were your research supervisor, Dr. Greenwood, Dean Lazarus, Don Stess, and they all kind of brought you into a different direction each time. But every t- even though there were different people in different situations, your reason was always the same, is that they've been good to me in the past and they haven't stirred me wrong. And so I just kind of wanted to know if you could expand on that a little bit in terms of having, having the right people and being able to listen to them, because sometimes we have them and we don't listen. And so I'm just kind of curious how you got to the point of knowing who you should and shouldn't listen to? So that's a great question. And I'm tearing up just even, especially thinking about Dawn's desk because that's the only other funeral that I cried at in my life other than my grandmother's. <laughs> and maybe my grandmother when she passed away, but I was a little bit more stoic with that one. Um, those individuals that you mentioned, Dr. Greenwood, Dawn Stuss, Jean Lazarus, and Sally Walker, I'll throw in there as well. I think you, the universe always unfolds the way it should. And therefore you meet people when you need to meet them. It is up to you whether you block that energy that allows you to extract from them what, what goodness they're showing you or not. And I was at such a low point in my life when I met Carol Greenwood that 
probably meeting her earlier in my life when I was more pompous and like just, you know, full of myself, I would have said, you know, I'm just not going to listen to her. I'm above her, you know, even though she's a PhD and I'm like a lowly student, but it was after, you know, failing out of university so many times, going back as an undergrad with uh, in doing that course with a daughter and a husband and like the humility level for Selena was like, you were supposed to be a doctor. You couldn't even graduate kind of stuff where your humility is so like high. You don't have a choice, but to listen to this woman. And she pushed me. And she pushed me as if she didn't know that I didn't, like I almost didn't graduate. She pushed me like I didn't have any mistakes. She pushed me like I didn't have any shame. She pushed me like I didn't have any guilt. And it was a critical first step because if I didn't meet her then and listen to her, it probably wouldn't have been, I probably wouldn't have listened to Don Stuss where he said, do your MBA as opposed to a master of science. Cause I would have been like, eh, well, why am I listening to you for? I'm just going to do a master of science. So things happen very serendipitously because the universe unfolds like it should. But the first person is Sally Walker who taught, was telling me, you know, drop your course load and graduate with a three-year degree. And I just chose not to ask questions. And so when the moment, when I met Don Stuss and he, I actually had to ask him the question of what, what do you mean? Why won't you do this for me and do this for me? If you haven't read the book, you'll have to read it or else you're not going to know what I'm talking about. Um, but why won't you do this for me? And he said, he went on to explain like the things that he saw in me that I, again, didn't see in myself. And so I don't know how you write a formula for that, for listening to people. I think maturity does that for you. I think humility does that for you. I think pain and experience of life does that for you but there's some people that would meet Sally Walker, Jean Lazarus, Dawn Stuss and Carol Greenwood and not do any of the things that I've done because they're in a different space and so even like right now where I'm on a very radical spiritual journey in my life I'm I'm at this point in my life because of everything that I've experienced I wouldn't be on a radical spiritual journey in my life in my thirties. I just wouldn't have capacity for it. Cause I, why would I do that? I'm cutting, I'm like cashing checks. Why would I be spiritual? It's like, it doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense to me. I think the universe does things when you need them. So there isn't a formula for necessarily how, how those relationships can be translated to someone else's. I just hope my story helps them to think about things differently. Got it. And in terms of just living, you said, and I'm quoting here, stop, to stop merely existing and make room for living. And yes. that really kind of caught me. And I said, well, what is a life well lived for you? How do you see that now? It's such a great question. And because I have an answer for it. Um, so I always tell my mom this, like, and she hates it. She hates it because it says, why do you have to be so morbid about everything? And I say, I'm not being morbid, mom, but I want on my tombstone, but I'm going to be cre cremated. So it's not going to have a tombstone, but you know, it adds dramatic effect. I want my tombstone to stay, to say all she had left to do was die. That's what I, I want people to show up at my funeral and be like, damn, man, I'm glad she's gone. Yo, because she kept doing everything. I wanted to try that and Selena was ahead of me in line. I didn't get my chance, yo. I want, man, 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 let's drink. First of all, first of all, let's be clear. 
if I go before Vidal and he doesn't have top shelf vodka at my funeral and bare soca music playing, I don't want to hear an ounce of reggae at my funeral. I, w- I wish he would. I wish he would. I wish some DJ would play reggae. Anyhow, I just wanted to say all she had left to do was die. And you know what, though? Like, let's bring it back a little bit because that's very morbid, but that's what I want. This pandemic, where you had people saying, oh, after the pandemic, I'm going to do this. After the pandemic, I'm I'm so grateful for things now. I see things differently. I didn't say one thing about after the pandemic I would do. I was like, after the pandemic, I would, "Mm, no, I've done that. After, "Mm, no, I've done that. After the pandemic, I would, nope, done that. So live your life, man. Like, really live it. Like, don't be stupid. Like, I've done a lot of dumb stuff. Well, you can, but I mean, I wouldn't advise it. It's kind of painful. Live, take chances, take risks, explore opportunities, taste food. To young people, I say, kiss frogs, like have sex, like do stuff, live, live. Live and I, I allow my children to do the exact same thing. Like my children, they've traveled around the world by themselves. At the beginning of the pandemic, I had a 15-year-old in Australia by herself with their other 15-year-old friend. And I was like, what kind of mother does that? And then I had a 20-year-old in the UK. And I was just like, okay, first I have to get the 15-year-old home by her. And then I have to like figure out how to get the 22, 20-year-old home, but she's not going to want to come home and, because they were living because I don't know how long I'm going to have these gifts called my children. So I'm going to let them live. So living means that at my funeral, everybody's like, all she had left to do was die. Good for her. All right. So speaking of those, those dumb things that lead to pain, <laughs> um, <laughs> as you said it, you also said in the book, reconciling my pain with my purpose. How do you explore your pain to find your purpose? And how would somebody do that? There's a lot of people that go through a lot of pain. I know that mental health is a big thing. Um, yeah. A lot of people are, are going through things, and but some of them are not necessarily thinking about, in this moment of pain, why am I going through it? And I'm just kind of curious, how, do you, how would you advise somebody to kind of get to that point of doing yeah. that reconciliation? So writing the book forced me to do it when you have a contractual obligation to a big publishing house, (laughs) you do things that you don't normally do. So I was like forced to figure out how all of these stories actually manifested themselves into something useful. And so the title of the book and everything came after the writing, like how I found my purpose and my voice, whatever it says at the beginning. That's how that happened because I was sort of forced to understand why I was so passionate about speaking up when I could have done something differently. I was forced to understand why I relentlessly continue to speak up on issues and to disrupt even at a cost. And that's important when we think about our identity related experience, expertise and knowledge as people with intersect with multiple intersecting identities, we bring with us a a number of values, not, not values as in values and beliefs, but valuable assets, 
through our experience, through our ability to navigate through systems or to overcome barriers, sometimes making mistakes, sometimes triumphantly. All of those experiences are valuable to what you're presently doing and therefore offer an, at, offered up as an asset to your purpose of doing whatever it is you're doing. So whether I'm in politics or I'm, you know, a, a advisor at Queens or I'm, you know, consulting, those, if I don't bring all of that forward and use them as a valuable tool, then we're leaving part of ourselves on the table. And if we look this up, McKinsey and Company did a report in 2015 looking at what would happen if women were given tools to reach their full potential? It would add 12 to $28 trillion into the global GDP. When McKinsey did this report in 2019, looking at racial inequality, what happens when there is racial inequity, meaning people can't be themselves in the workplace, they can't have a sense of belonging and inclusion in workplaces. It'll cost, it will cost the US economy by 2028, 6% of their GDP or one to $1.5 trillion. So when we do not bring our full selves and translate that pain, joy, hurt, purpose into our current and present existence, either by structural barriers, which racism does make happen, or through ourselves conforming to fit into a space because we're afraid of bringing our 100% authentic selves there, we are leaving money and value on the table. And it is the tunes of millions of dollars because we are worth more than that. Yes, there's an economic argument for why I'm so badass. <laughs> well if people would only realize it's literally costing you it's money literally costing literally. money and it Your sounds really money. capitalist and i know everybody's like, oh, so capitalist. it's a motivating factor some people are motivated to equity through money you know you have to talk some people only hear the dollars in the sense so. let's just talk about the trillions of them yeah <laughs> exactly that we as people with intersecting identities are worth yeah i'm not afraid to do that i've said more disruptive things before <laughs> awesome um so a quote here from your book uh more about people than titles more about impact than rhetoric more about using my voice for good how you live how you live your best life when you're unsure what to do next so what is next or what is now for Selena, what are you up to uh, now? What are you up to next that you'd like the folks to know? So as I said, I'm on this incredible spiritual journey. I'm doing um, Deepak Chopra's uh, wellness course. I'm like knee deep in just living in the frequency of love that my now is my next. I am very present. I'm you can see you. it, it's, it's glowing for me. <laughs> I'm with you now and I'm not even smelling what my husband is cooking in the kitchen. Like I am just present and, you know, I've lived my entire life. And, and I think young people will, will note this at you, like you draw this map and you're like, okay, I'm gonna do four years of university and then I'm gonna do four years of X and then I'm gonna do two years of Y and then I'm gonna do this of that. And then I'm gonna do this. And then next I'm gonna do that. And I'm next, I'm gonna do this. And we're always chasing something next. But the moment that you lift your head up just for a moment to literally stop and smell the roses. One of the most powerful symbols of you of, of enlightenment or awakening 
is your appreciation of things like flowers because, and it's, it's so important when you say stop and smell the roses, because I never liked roses. I was always told, but I'll don't buy them. I mean, why waste that kind of money where they just die? Now I buy myself, I literally buy myself flowers so that I could stop and smell them mm-hmm. because I need to lift my head up out of there and take a moment to appreciate this moment. There is no time. Love the present. There is no time. There is no past. There is no future. There is only now so my now is my next and whatever the traditional definition of next is is not my concern i know that i have to be well now spiritually emotionally physical in order to be to be able to do whatever next may be so let's just be now and love that (laughs) your next is now Yeah, my next is my now. Where can we find you and where can we find the book? I am found on uh, Facebook, TikTok, IG, and Twitter at I am Selena CC. And to find the book, go to the website, which is selenacc.ca. Uh, forward slash book or if you just go there you'll see can you hear me now and you just click on it it gives you links to buy everything but it's selena c-e-l-i-n-a-c-c so i am selena cc and selena cc.ca fantastic um and before our closing question i just want to um i'm sure you've gotten many thanks from all over but i want to personally say thank you for being so transparent and literally putting everything out there on the table for us and Kurt and I were talking about you know would we ever do a tell-all we're just like man um the courage it takes to to put it out there but as you said it was it's healing for you it's healing for others I was you know as you see moved to tears uh, many times reading this because I related to so many parts of it I'm like oh my gosh that's me that's me I wish I could have done that but I wasn't as brave as Selena was when I was when I was that younger the other thing I would say though is that when you do put this out it's just like when it's out there nobody can hold any secrets over your head anymore because it's just like it's in the book. So, <laughs> so I would hope that there's also a demonstration that there's a freedom in, in putting it out there because nobody can ever again hold it over yeah. their head. And on multiple levels. So like when my kids yeah. decide I have one that I know is going to be challenging for me. And I keep saying to her, didn't you read the book? I know what you're about to do. Yeah. So try it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. In there, done that. You said it, yes. <laughs> 20 and, steps ahead. And you've written the book. Yeah, and I wrote the book. Like, and I gave you, you a manual on how to do, like, it's like the 10 crack commandments. I wrote you a manual. Like, come on. Oh, man. So just, yeah, th- thank you so much for, for being transparent um, and for, for providing, yes, healing for yourself, but for many, many, many other people who will uh, come across your, your story uh, who can't speak up about it and have their have their own healing so thank you so much for that and and they don't have to but those that can should yes it'll have that ripple effect so thank you i, I really appreciate that before i ask the closing question i had one more kind of thought i wanted you to share it really comes from your experience of dealing with so many people you have traveled when you went to europe 
and you, you used that opportunity to travel while you were there. And you also traveled as a member of parliament. And I'm just kind of wondering, and then you also had the note, the letter that really stood out for me, I'm calling it, I see you, right? The, the letter that you wrote to the, to the various women and, and people that you, you talked about helping with your communities that you represent. And after going through all of this and traveling, meeting all the different people, cultures, and people from different walks of life, what have you learned about people and just interacting with them, being with them, mm -hmm. and sustaining with them? Yeah, um, that we have more in common than we are different. Like, I think there's a general sense of love and appreciation, even from those who are, you know, we think that we have, we think we're so privileged and we have so much great things. And then you go to a small village and fishing village in Ghana, and I'm literally in the ocean pulling this fishing net in. And I'm like, my manicure. <laughs> and these guys are like just pulling that's why I don't do manicures anymore, but they're pulling these like, I mean, false tips or whatever. I still do my nails, but they're pulling these nets in and they're laughing and they're enjoying life. And they're just, they're just chilling and they're living the best nows ever. Not chasing next, just catching some fish, feeding my family, having a good time right now, being responsible to the earth not overfishing, not doing too much, but doing what we need to sustain ourselves. And I think I've, I've learned the power of now. It's an Eckhart Tolle book, but I've learned the power of now through my travels, through understanding that there's more about life than our four block radius. There's more to life than privilege in dollar signs and acquisitions. There's a love, a, a general frequency of love that this world, but especially Black people have universally. And I just, whenever I'm feeling a little bit depressed or anxiety, I tap into that frequency of love because it's, there's, there's no other love like it than the love of our community for each other. There is none. It does. I don't think it exists. Like we love each other, fear, like we fight fiercely, but if we had to do something more, this whole, this whole black on black vibes, like that is an anomaly of us. We are, we love each other in a fierce, fierce way. And I think it's a, it's a, a, a translation of our Western society of colonialism of so many things, but the love that we have it's unprecedented. It could change the world. And the love of Black women in particular, <laughs> child, that's why they don't want to keep us in Parliament, because we will change the damn world. Love it. Our closing question. It's the same question we ask everybody. Yes. First words. Oh, no, no pressure. This is going to okay. be the easiest question you had all day. Okay. First First words or thoughts when you hear the word harmony? Harmony, Black people. That song, that universe, that one song. There is something about love and it ties into what I just said. There's something about that love of community that brings that universe, that one song, that harmonious frequency around us that becomes our dharma, becomes everything that we do, our purpose, our, our life, our 
ikigai, whatever we want to call it, it becomes that for us. And we, when we are in sync, when we are in step with each other, that's when we are most powerful. That's why that song, Ain't No Half Stepping, like everybody needs to be singing that song. If you have not taught your kids that ain't no half stepping, like if you have not taught them anything about hip hop, teach them that song, okay? Because there ain't no half stepping with, with us. When it comes to our harmonious movements and wanting to get things done, and we, we need to somehow find that again. And not be afraid to talk about the harmonious nature of us. We, we, the keepers of the earth, we, the birthplace of humanity, we, the creators of science and engineering and mathematics and astronomy, we are not black excellence. We are just excellence. Like we, that is us. That is who we are as a people. We are not black love. We are just love. We, we are the universe. We, it is in us. And so harmony is my community. It is everything that I love. It's everything that I'll fight for. It's everything that I will, that I'll live the rest of my life trying to maintain balance with. Thank you for that. If you kept singing, I was going to get up and start dancing, but you just stopped, so it's okay. <laughs> you don't want me to sing because you know what? <laughs> I can sing to clear a room. I can't sing to make anybody come in. And I think I could sing. I'm going to go on American Idol be like, no, I'm not going to. I'm, not gonna do I'm horrible. It, I'm awful. It has been a pleasure. Thank you for for coming out. Thank you for, oh, for thank making you. this such a special show. I know that people are really going to enjoy this one. Yeah, it just it's been great. Thank, thank you, you so much, much for having me. I thank really so appreciate much. it. We love you.